Let Me Tell You a Story, podcast number 50. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Call me Ishmael. It was the age of wisdom. Some years ago. It was the age of Never mind. It is a truth universally You don't know about me without you. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story with hosts Steve and Becky Lyle. Settle back into your seat, step onto your favorite fitness machine, or lace up your walking shoes, and enjoy stories from a variety of genres and authors. Hi, this is Steve. Hi, this is Becky. Today, Steve and I are celebrating our 50th podcast. Many thanks to all of you for listening to Let Me Tell You a Story. A special thank you goes to one of our most faithful listeners, Susan P., who recently moved far, far away, but who promised to continue to listen. We trust you are loving your new position, Susan, and that you and your family are enjoying your new home. And now, Steve will start us off on podcast number 50 with Treasure Island, Chapter 11. I'm going to review a little bit from the last chapter. The barrel shook as he leaned his shoulders against it, and I was just about to jump up when the man began to speak. It was Silver's voice, and before I had heard a dozen words, I would not have shown myself for all the world, but lay there, trembling and listening, in the extreme of fear and curiosity. For from these dozen words, I understood that the lives of all the honest men aboard depended upon me alone. Chapter 11, What I Heard in the Apple Barrel No, not I, said Silver. Flint was cap'n. I was quartermaster along of my timber leg. The same broadside I lost my leg, old Pew lost his deadlights. It was a master surgeon, him, that amputated me out of college and all that. Latin by the bucket and whatnot. But he was hanged like a dog and sun-dried like the rest at Corso Castle. That was Robert's men, that was, and corned of changing names to their ships, royal fortune and so on. Now what a ship was christened, so let her stay, I says. So it was with the Cassandra, as brought us all safe home from Malabar after England took the viceroy of the Indies. So it was with the old walrus, Flint's old ship, as I've seen a muck with the red blood and fit to sink with gold. Ah, cried another voice, that of the youngest hand on board, and evidently full of admiration. He was the flower of the flock, was Flint. Davis was a man too, by all accounts, said Silver. I never sailed along of him, first with England, then with Flint, that's my story. And now here on my account, in a manner of speaking, I laid by 900 safe from England and 2,000 after Flint. That ain't bad for a man before the mast and safe in bank. Tain't earning now, it's saving, does it? You may lay to that. Where's all England's men now? I don't know. Where's Flint's? Why, most on them aboard here. And glad to get the duff. Been begging before that, some on him. Old Pew has had his has had lost his sight and might have thought shame spends twelve hundred pounds in a year, like a lord in Parliament. Where is he now? Well, 
He's dead now and under hatches. But for two years before that, shiver my timbers. The man was starving. He begged and he stole and he cut throats and starved at that by the powers. Well, it ain't much use after all, said the young seaman. Tain't much use for fools, you may lay to it. That, nor nothing, cried Silver. But now you look here. You're young, you are. But you're as smart as paint. I see that when I set my eyes on you, and I'll talk to you like a man. You may imagine how I felt when I heard this abominable old rogue addressing another in the very same words of flattery as he had used to myself. I think, if I had been able, that I would have killed him through the barrel. Meantime, he ran on, little supposing he was overheard. Here it is about gentlemen of fortune. They lives rough, and they risk swinging, but they eat and drink like fighting cocks. And when a cruise is done, why, it's hundreds of pounds instead of hundreds of farthings in their pockets. Now the most goes for rum and a good fling, and to see again in their shirts. But that's not the chorus I lay. I puts it all away, some here, some there, and none too much anywhere is by reason of suspicion. I'm fifty, mark you. Once back from this cruise, I set up gentlemen in earnest. Time enough, too, says you. Ah, but I've lived easy in the meantime, never denied myself of nothing heart desires, and slept soft and ate dainty all my days, but went at sea. And how did I begin? Before the mast, like you. Well, said the other, but all the other money's gone now, ain't it? You don't show face in Bristol after this. Why, where might you suppose it was? asked Silver derisively. At Bristol, in banks and places, answered his companion. It were, said the cook, it were when we weighed anchor. But my old missus has it all by now. And the spyglass is sold, lease and goodwill and rigging. And the old girl's off to meet me. I would tell you where, for I trust you. But it'd make jealousy among the mates. And can you trust your missus? asked the other. Gentlemen of fortune, returned the cook, usually trust little among themselves, and right they are. You may lay to it. But I have a way with me, I have. When a weight brings a slip on his cable, one as knows me, I mean, it won't be in the same world with old John. There was some that was feared of Pew, and some that was feared of Flint. But Flint, his own self, was feared of me. Feared he was, and proud. They was the roughest crew afloat, was Flint's. The devil himself would have been feared to go to sea with them. Well, now, I tell you, I'm not a boasting man. And you've seen yourself how easy I keep company. But when I was quartermaster, lambs wasn't the word for Flint's old buccaneers. Ah, uh, you may be sure of yourself in old John's ship. Well, I tell you now, replied the lad, I didn't half a quarter like the job till I had this talk with you, John, but there's my hand on it now. And a brave lad you were, and smart too, answered Silver, shaking hands so heartily that all the barrels shook, 
and a finer figurehead for a gentleman of fortune I never clapped my eyes on. By this time, I had begun to understand the meaning of their terms. By a gentleman of fortune, they plainly meant neither more nor less than a common pirate, and the little scene that I had overheard was the last act in the corruption of one of the honest hands, perhaps, of the last one left aboard. But on this point, I was soon to be relieved, for, Silver giving a little whistle, a third man strolled up and sat down by the party. "'Dick's Square,' said Silver. "'Oh, I knowed Dick was square,' returned the voice of the coxswain. "'Israel Hands, he's no fool, is Dick.' And he turned his quid and spat. "'But look here,' he went on. "'Here's what I want to know, Barbecue.' How long are we a-going to stand off and on like a blessed bumboat? I've had a-most enough of Captain Smollett. He's hazed me long enough, by thunder. I want to go into that cabin, I do. I want their pickles and wines and that. Israel, said Silver, your head ain't much account, nor ever was. But you're able to hear, I reckon, leastways. Your ears is big enough. Now here's what I say. You'll berth forward and you'll live hard, and you'll speak soft and you'll keep sober till I give the word, and you may lay to that, my son. Well, I don't say no, do I? growled the coxswain. What I say is, when? That's what I say. When? By the powers, cried Silver. Well, now, if you want to know, I'll tell you when. The last moment I can manage, and that's when. Here's a first-rate seaman, Captain Smollett. Sails the blessed ship for us. Here's this squire and doctor with a map and such. I don't know where it is, do I? No more do you, says you. Well, then, I mean this squire and doctor shall find the stuff and help us to get it aboard by the powers. Then we'll see. If I was sure of you all, sons of double Dutchmen, I'd have Captain Smollett navigate us halfway back again before I struck. Why, we're all seamen aboard here, I should think, said the lad, Dick. We're all forecastle hands, you mean, snapped Silver. We can steer a course, but who's to set one? That's what all you gentlemen split on, first and last. If I had my way, I'd have Captain Smollett work us back into the trades, at least. Then we'd have no blessed miscalculations and a spoonful of water a day. But I know the sort you are. I'll finish with them at the island as soon's the blunt's on board, and a pity it is. But you're never happy till you're drunk. Split my sides of a sick heart to sail with the likes of you. Easy all, Long John, cried Israel. Who's a crossin' of you? Why, how many tall ships, think ye now, have I seen laid aboard? And how many brisk lads drying in the sun at execution dock, cried Silver. And all for this same hurry and hurry and hurry. You hear me? I seen a thing or two at sea, I have. If you would only lay your course and a pint to windward, you would ride in carriages, you would. But not you. I know you. You'll have your mouth full of rum tomorrow and go hang. Everybody knowed you was a kind of chaplain, John. But there's others as could hand and steer as well as you, said Israel. They liked a bit of fun, they did. They wasn't so high and dry, no how. 
but took their fling like jolly companions, every one. So, says Silver, well, and where are they now? Pew was that sort, and he died a beggar man. Flint was, and he died of rum at Savannah. Oh, they was a sweet crew, they was. Only, where are they? But, asked Dick, when do we lay them athwart? What are we to do with them anyhow? There's the man for me, cried the cook, admiringly. That's what I call business. Well, what would you think? Put them ashore like maroons? That would have been England's way. Or cut them down like that much pork? That would have been Flint's or Billy Bones's. Billy was the man for that, said Israel. Dead men don't bite, says he. Well, he's dead now himself. He knows the long and short on it now. And if ever a rough hand come to port, it was Billy. Right you are, said Silver, rough and ready. But mark you here. I'm an easy man. I'm quite the gentleman, says you. But this time, it's serious. Duty is duty, mates. I give my vote death. When I'm in Parliament and riding in my coach, I don't want none of these sea lawyers in the cabin a coming home unlooked for like the devil at prayers. Wait is what I say, but when the time comes, why let her rip. John, cries the coxswain, you're a man. You'll say so, Israel, when you see, said Silver. Only one thing I claim, I claim Trelawney. I'll wring his calf's head off his body with these hands. Dick, he added, breaking off, you just jump up like a sweet lad and get me an apple to wet my pipe like. You may fancy the terror I was in. I should have leaped out and run for it if I had found the strength, but my limbs and heart alike misgave me. I heard Dick begin to rise, and then someone seemingly stopped him in the voice of hands exclaimed, Oh, stow that. Don't you get sucking of that bilge, John? Let's have a go of the rum. Dick, said Silver, I trust you. I've a gauge on the keg, mind. Here's the key. You fill a pannikin and bring it up. Terrified as I was, I could not help thinking to myself that this must have been how Mr. Arrow got the strong waters that destroyed him. Dick was gone but a little while, and during his absence, Israel spoke straight on in the cook's ear. It was but a word or two that I could catch, and yet I gathered some important news. For besides other scraps that tended to the same purpose, this whole clause was audible. Not another man of them will jine. Hence there were still faithful men on board. When Dick returned, one after another of the trio took the pannikin and drank. One to luck, another with a, Here's to old Flint, and Silver himself saying, in a kind of song, Here's to ourselves, and hold your luff, plenty of prizes and plenty of duff. Just then, a sort of brightness fell upon me in the barrel, and looking up, I found the moon had risen and was silvering the mizzen top and shining white on the luff of the foresail. And almost at the same time, the voice of the lookout shouted, Land ho! 
Occasionally, we read from a short story book titled Passageways that contains several of my stories, as well as those of three other Idaho authors. This is one I wrote, but it's not exactly original. I based it on an Old Testament account about the prophet Elijah and a Phoenician widow who was also a single mom, and I called it The God Gift. Keturah tossed one last withered stick into the basket and stooped to lift it to her shoulder. She swayed as she straightened, dizzy from the heat and an empty stomach. Would there ever be an end to this miserable drought? She surveyed the barren landscape around her, Almost all of the shriveled shrubs in the wasteland between Seraphath and the Great Sea had been stripped for firewood. Each time she ventured outside the city to search for fuel, she had to walk farther into the desert to find more twigs. She glanced back to where her son Bershi was playing in, with rocks beneath the long shadow of Zarephath's high wall. From this distance, she could barely make out his small form. She hated to leave him so far behind, but she didn't want the sun to drain what little energy he had. A dust devil swirled over the scorched earth, gathering sand and dirt and flinging it into the sky, its path unobstructed by trees or structures. Soon her people would be forced to forage the Lebanon mountains for wood, but few would have the strength to walk that far or make the climb. And what good would wood do without food to cook? If only she and Bershi could flee the famine. But she'd heard that there was no escape in all of Phoenicia. She shoved at a pebble with her sandaled toe. Life had not been easy since her dear Joatham's death. Even before the rain stopped, she'd struggled to provide for her son and herself. But now... Keturah adjusted the basket, which was digging into her bony shoulder. Today, she would bake their last bread cake, and no one cared. A bitter sob rasped from her dry throat. Baal, their supposed deity of rain and bountiful harvest, the lord of life itself, ignored her pleas for mercy, just like he had when Joatham was ill. Despite her weakness, Keturah squared her shoulders and lifted her head. She might be at death's door, but she would not, could not pacify the cruel god by sacrificing another child. Bershi was her only reason to live. A movement in the distance caught her attention. Keturah squinted. A dark figure was plodding toward her. Miniature dust clouds followed each footstep. Hair rose on the back of her neck and Keturah sucked in a breath. She had lived this moment before. It would be a man. Shading her eyes with her free hand, she watched the traveler draw closer. Yes, definitely a man. She recognized the way he marched along, his head high, a walking stick grasped in one hand. She blinked and rubbed her eyes. Hunger and heat were affecting her mind. Even so, a chill shot through her hot body. Last night's dream had been so real, so vivid, and now she was seeing it reenacted. Or maybe she was hallucinating. She slapped her cheek and felt the sting. The voice from the dream spoke again. Feed, my prophet. Keturah looked around but saw no one other than the stranger. What was happening to her? The muscular man strode through the coarse sand without altering his pace. She wanted to turn and run, but she couldn't tear her gaze from his raven eyes. Dirt crusted his entire body, from his long, shaggy black mane and straggly gray-streaked beard to his well-worn leather sandals. 
His scant camel hair garment was anchored by a wide cowhide belt. Thick hair coated his arms and legs. The man came to an abrupt halt in front of her. I am Elijah from Tishbe in Gilead, he declared, shattering the desert stillness with his harsh voice. Keturah jerked backward and almost dropped her basket. I come in the name of Jehovah, the stranger continued, the all-knowing, almighty God of Israel. He smelled like he hadn't bathed in weeks, maybe months. She stared at him. Why was he talking about a god? My journey has been long and hot, he continued, gazing beyond her and through her at the same time. Jehovah said I would find a widow, one to whom he has given instructions concerning me, gathering wood outside the gates of Zarephath. His black eyes focused on her. Are you that woman? Keturah's instinct was to deny the dream, grab her son, and run from the wild man. Instead, she answered truthfully, I am. Her voice quavered. My husband was Baal Joatham. His name is Baal. The man pounded the hard desert floor with his walking stick. Baal's a false god, an evil god, a demonic spirit from the pit. He lowered his voice to a gritty growl. And a baby killer. Keturah gasped and glanced toward the city if the guards heard him. I am Elijah, he repeated, a prophet of the living, loving, eternal God. The frenzied man looked away, smiled vaguely, and relaxed his grip on the walking stick. I come in peace. May may your God grant you everlasting peace, she shifted the, her heavy burden to her other shoulder. He will grant peace when we rid ourselves of Ahab and that wicked Baal-worshipping woman, Jezebel spawn of your vile land. Elijah whirled and tramped toward the city wall. Keturah shivered, hating to think what the city rulers would do to him if they learned of his blasphemy. Trailing cautiously behind, she followed Elijah into the shade, where he plopped down against the wall and said, Please bring me a cup of water. Despite his crude behavior, Keturah could not refuse a thirsty man, one who just walked untold miles through the desert. Zarephath's wells are not yet dry. Rest here. I will return with water. Bershi, who was nearby, joined them. Mama, who's that man? A traveler. She reached for his hand and turned to go. Your name? She hesitated, but finally told Elijah her name. He pushed tangled hair from his tired face. Keturah, bring me a piece of bread, too. His voice had lost its gruffness and was almost pleading. Bread? The nerve of this foreigner. He insults my dead husband and our God and then asks for bread. Can't he see we're starving? She glared at him. I swear by your God I haven't a single piece of bread in my house. I have only a handful of barley flour left and a little cooking oil in the bottom of the jug. Her voice came too loud and too fast and burned her parched throat. She swallowed. I have gathered a few small sticks to cook our last meal. Then my son and I will die. Bershi gaped at her with wide eyes. Keturah touched his shoulder, instantly regretting she'd spoken so bluntly in his presence. Elijah's features softened. Do not be afraid. Go ahead. Bake a small loaf and bring it to me. There will be flour and oil left for you and your son. The Lord God of Israel promises you will have plenty of oil and meal in your pots until he sends rain and the crops grow again. 
Katura nearly dropped her basket. What had she gotten herself into? He was a madman. And urged to throw her sticks at the stranger and flee with Bershi into the safety behind the city walls. Pulsed through her. But Elijah closed his eyes and leaned back. Even though he appeared unconcerned, she had a feeling he was aware of the strife within her spirit. Mama? Bershi looked from her to Elijah and back with troubled eyes. Are we really going to die? The wind shifted and Kitura caught another whiff of Elijah's body odor. She coughed to keep from gagging. We'll talk about it later. Right now we must hurry home. She grabbed her son's hand and rushed toward the portal. Her mind whirling. Our last meal, and the prophet once, demands it for himself. She could go without eating. What did one more meal matter? But how could she deny her only child a few more precious hours of life? Where she stumbled and almost fell, Katura slowed her pace on the narrow stone street. For a brief moment, she dared to hope. What if the man's God really was different than Baal? Would Jehovah help them? The Phoenician princess Jezebel had married the Israelite king Ahab. Yet the Phoenicians and Israelites served different gods. Was it possible for one god to be more powerful than the others? They worked their way through a crowded intersection. A passing man with a long pole balanced on his shoulder knocked the basket from her shoulder and didn't even look back. Keturah and Bursi bent to pick up their few scrawny sticks. Rude men, fickle gods, crazy prophets. Maybe it wouldn't be so terrible to leave this worthless world after all. When they arrived at their house, she set the basket on the ground, and Bershi began to stack the firewood in the outdoor oven. Katura started the fire before she went inside to empty her pots of flour and oil, not daring a second glance into the depleted vessels. She mixed the ground barley and oil with water, simple substances, yet more precious than anything except life itself. Kneading the dough for the small loaf didn't require much time, but when she finished, she held it in her palms, unable to part with her treasure. What if the man was telling the truth? Their lives would be changed forever. But what if he was lying? What if he stole their last morsel of food? She closed her eyes. Did it matter? They would die soon, anyway. Bershi came running into the house. The fire's hot, Mama. She quickly shaped the dough into a flat round loaf, placed it on a baking stone, and handed it to him. He scurried out of the room with such enthusiasm she couldn't help but smile. Her son was a good boy. Joatham would have been so proud of him. She chewed at her thumbnail. How could she tell Bershi he couldn't eat the bread once it was baked? And how could she forgive herself for taking sustenance out of her dying child's mouth to give to a stranger who was not only a madman but Jezebel's enemy? She could be killed for feeding him. But maybe that's what she deserved for sacrificing her firstborn, her beloved daughter, Tirza, into Baal's fiery hands. And Jotham had died anyway. She would never forgive herself. Katura buried her face in her hands, but she did not cry. The rare occasions that she wept, she wept alone, after Bershi was asleep. The little loaf was soon baked to a tantalizing golden brown. Katura removed the stone from the clay oven and slid the bread onto a woven cloth in the center of the table. She breathed in the satisfying aroma. The barley cake smelled so good, and they were so hungry. Bershi leaned close to sniff the flaxen loaf, close enough she could hear his stomach grumble. He looked up at her with bright eyes. 
Keturah had to look away. What if the Israelite god was as undependable as the Phoenician gods? What if giving away the last of their food killed her son? What if? Can we eat now, Mama? Answering him was the hardest thing she'd done since she sacrificed her daughter. Remember what that man said outside the city wall? She touched his thin shoulder. We must give him this loaf. Bershey's eyes widened. But Mama, I'm hungry. He clutched his stomach. It hurts. Katura took her son's thin, dry hands. I know, I know. But we have no more flour or oil. She hoped her smile covered the panic and desperation she felt. That man and his God promised if we give the prophet the barley cake, we will have plenty to eat. I heard him say that, but... This bread is only for today, Bershi. If we eat it, we eat our last meal. Then we will die like your grandparents and your father and your sister. But if we give the bread away, the prophet said his God will fill our pots with enough flour and oil for today and tomorrow, and as long as we need. We must believe him. We have no other hope. Stay tuned. Becky's coming back to read his, and read the rest of that. But I'm going to give her voice a break by reading a few poems by Eugene Shea. This one's called Fisherman's Luck. It's so often I feel as I check my creel after a poor fishing day, it is my fervent wish that I could catch fish large as those that get away. This is The Specialist. Many days I have lain in this hospital bed, hard as pavement on my aching backbone. Not sick enough that I can rest content, but too sick for the doc to send me home. I'm feeling forgotten, the one left behind, only the nurses bearing pills come around. As day follows day, how long must I stay? Has the cause of my malaise been found? This morning a stranger walked into my room. I can tell he's the kind of a doctor that cares. Some kind of a specialist, I would assume. I can tell by the cut of the beard he wears. Looking very well this morning, young man. Poked and probed me and walked all around. A couple more days and you'll be out of here. In maybe a week you'll be back on the town. Now here is a doc that is my kind of a doc. That's the diagnosis I've been wanting to hear. A couple more nights on this plank I can stand, just knowing that my release is so near. A slight young fellow in hospital garb shows up at the door of my room, come to call my sympathetic visitor away to some emergency case, I assume. Seems I've seen this messenger here before, perhaps in the company of a mop or a broom. Trash is all gathered and waiting for you, Bill, he informed my guest as they leave my room. And a couple of short ones. This one is called Warning Soup. When her soup tastes like battery acid and you find that the car won't start, be careful, old man, do be careful. Your marriage may be falling apart. (laughs) Death of a Vegetarian. 
He was a vegetarian, a vegetables, not meat, till he met a humanitarian that ate him for a treat. <laughs> and one more. This is called Seniors Evening Entertainment. An evening in our golden years said the best days of our lives. But the TV is on the blink until a repairman arrives. It's too dark to go fishing or too old for making love. Too cloudy to watch the skies for star patterns from above. I'm tired of playing cards. Board games are not our thing. We'll sit outside in the dark, listen to the mosquitoes sing. Elijah's raucous snoring greeted them when they neared the wall. Percy tiptoed close and set the water jar beside the sleeping man. Katura cringed when he tapped the prophet's filthy shoulder. Wake up, prophet, Bursi said. We brought you water to drink and bread to eat. The hairy man lurched to a sitting position. He stared at them, his bird-like eyes dull and dazed. Overwhelmed again by doubt and fear, Katura threw the basket at Elijah. Take the last of our bread. She grabbed her son's hand and fled. They would die together at home. When they neared their house, Bershi broke from her grasp and burst through the doorway. But Keturah stopped to kneel beside the oven. She stirred the glowing embers, the remains of their final fire. Which of them would die first? Mama! Mama! Bershi's excited yell broke into her reverie. Come quick! Keturah jumped to her feet, almost passing out from the sudden movement. She darted inside the house to find her son standing triumphantly above the grain barrel and oil jug. With what had to be the last of his strength, he had slid them before a window. Look, Mama, look. She peeked into the flour container and then the oil jar. Oh, Bershi, he did it. The Israelite God did it. She pulled her child close, tears of joy spilling down her cheeks and onto his head. Let's dance. Bershi held out his hands. Kachira laughed and together they twirled around the room until dizziness overcame them both. They fell onto a mat, gasping for breath. But a second later, Bershi was on his feet. Time to cook, he tugged at his mother's garment before he ran out of the room, calling, I'll stir the fire and add some sticks. Keturah opened her eyes. Bershi was patting her face with a touch as soft as a breeze. Wake up, Mama, he said. We can make another cake this morning. She smiled. The morning sun rarely had a chance to warm her son's cheeks before he rolled his pallet into the corner and threw on his tunic. He hurried to the other side of the room to peek inside the tall jars. Aha! Just enough for one loaf, maybe two. Come, Bershi. He skipped to her side. Katura took his hand. First, we must find Elijah to thank him and invite him to eat with us. After that, we will gather more fuel. Our flour and oil will not cook without a fire. Outside the city wall, Bershi pointed toward the great sea. There he is, Keturah nodded. Yes, that has to be him. A stocky man's snarled hair and beard fluttered around his head and shoulders. She took a deep breath, savoring the salty early morning breeze that drifted off the water and dreading another encounter with the stench that emanated from the man. Give him your guest room. What? Keturah whirled. Bershi gave her a questioning look. I didn't say anything, Mama. The voice spoke again. Give him the room. 
on your roof. Katura dipped her head. Yes, Jehovah. She chuckled, amused by the familiarity with which she spoke, as if she'd been talking to the Israelite God all her life. From that day on, Katura made barley cakes for her son and herself and their house guests every day. Elijah was a man of few words, and those few words were often strident and condemning. Yet, despite his uncouth behavior, she knew she could trust him. He was Jehovah's messenger on earth. Just when Bershi's bony arms had regained their childish contours and the drawn look had left his face, Katura awakened early one morning to find him tossing and moaning on his pallet. His body was pink with fever and damp with perspiration, like Joatham's had been during his long sickness. Her heart convulsed. What could be the matter? He'd been perfectly healthy the day before. She swallowed her fear and placed wet claws on his head and tried to get him to drink water. Throughout the morning, he worsened. As she exchanged a hot cloth on his forehead, for a fresh, cool one, she whispered, Bershi, I must go for help. At that moment, he slipped into unconsciousness and stopped breathing. No, she cried. Bershi, no, she shook his limp body. He did not respond. Pulling him to her chest, she staggered to her feet, screaming, Elijah! Elijah! Through the fog of panic, she heard the prophet race down the exterior stairs. When he rushed into the room, she yelled, What do you have against me? Did you come to remind me of my sin? Her voice was thick with anguish. Is it because I sacrificed my child to the God you hate? Did you kill my son to punish me? Ignoring her accusations, Elijah demanded, Give the boy to me. He snatched Percy from arms and dashed out of the house and up the stairs. Katura fell across Percy's pallet. My son, my son, she sobbed, my only child. My only child. She gripped the blanket in her fists. Forgive me, Jehovah, for giving my daughter to the priest to kill. I was wrong, so wrong. A loud lament from above made her sit up. In a mighty voice, Elijah pleaded, Lord, why do you bring tragedy to this woman, the very one who has provided shelter and meals for me at your direction? Oh, my God, let this boy's life return to him. Katura held her breath. Please, Jehovah. She dug her fingernails into the pallet. Please. A deafening stillness filled the room. She was about to collapse in defeat and grief when she heard the rumble of footsteps on the outer stairs, and Elijah burst through the doorway. Katura stumbled to her feet. Look! Elijah thrust her boy into her arms. Your son lives. Tears streaming down her face, she kissed Bershi's soft cheeks again and again, ignoring his confused expression. Finally, she turned to Elijah. I believe. I believe Jehovah is the only true God, a loving and generous God. You are his prophet, and you speak the truth. Forgive my doubt. Katura set Bershi on his feet and stood behind him, her hands on his shoulders to steady him. I give my son, my only child, to Jehovah and to you as my offering of thanksgiving. He will be a good helper to you. Elijah frowned. Katura raised her chin and met his gaze. I don't want him to grow up in this blood-soaked evil land of hate and fear and death. That's all our hideous gods and goddesses and their depraved priests offer. She wrapped her arms around her son. This is my sacrifice of love. Love for Bershi and love for Jehovah. 
the God of life and love. We all know it's the political season, and here are a few quotes. By the way, I've put these on my Facebook page uh, with others, but here are some of my favorites so far. It's impossible to hold a person to anything he says while he's in love, drunk, or running for office. That's Shirley MacLaine. And this one from Ronald Reagan. Politics is supposed to be the second oldest profession. I have come to realize that it bears a very close resemblance to the first. And with that, we'll sign off. Thanks for listening. Until next time, happy reading. Thanks for listening. You can find more of Becky Lyles under the pen name Rebecca Carey Lyles. Her most recent novels, Winds of Wyoming and Winds of Freedom, have both won awards and made the Amazon bestselling list. Steve, well, he just really needs to get his stuff published. If you have comments or suggestions, send them to story at beckyliles.com. Tune in next week for more tall tales and fun fables at Let Me Tell You a Story.